celebrate Good Friday with us this evening. Um, I was I was talking with my boys earlier this week about the Easter weekend and the fact that it was going to be Good Friday. And Ethan's like, oh, that's awesome. Does that mean we get to go shopping? Like, no, buddy, that's Black Friday. Uh, but close. This is a day that we celebrate, like, eternal savings. And um, no. I, what I really said was, no, that's Black Friday. This, on, on Good Friday, we celebrate Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And, and he goes, oh, oh, yeah, okay. But his face was saying more like, seriously, that's what we celebrate? How medieval of us, right? Um, <laughs> and it is a little ironic that we call a day when our Lord and our Savior was arrested, beaten, mocked, spat upon, and ultimately murdered. We call that good. And yet, when you step back and you look at what this day represents, what took place some 2,000 years ago on this day, we begin to realize that this is probably the single most important day in history from our standpoint as humanity. Far more, I would argue, far more important even than Easter Sunday. Because Easter Sunday is simply a, 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 a proof that what took place on Friday actually meant something, that Jesus actually did what he claimed to do. What did he do? He willingly walked to the cross, walked into the jaws of death, and used his body to absorb the venom that our sins had earned for us. He took the penalty for our sins and died in our place so that we could live and so that he took the sting out of sin and shame and even death. Tomorrow we're going to celebrate the life of one of our friends, Gene Grivey. Um, and it is going to be a celebration tomorrow because of what we celebrate tonight. I will admit, however, that although this is perhaps the most important moment in history, it's kind of like I was thinking about how Einstein's theory of relativity, there's this kind of point and, and, and time bows around it. If I, I'm not sure for those of you who kind of follow relativity, you see that bow. This is that moment in history where everything that came before, from Genesis all the way through, up through Jesus' birth and Christmas, that's we, it's still, we, don't, we celebrate Jesus' birth in light of his death. And all of that was pointing forward to this moment in history when Jesus would hang on a cross. And in everything that came after it, from Sunday on all the way through our lives into what is, is spelled out in Revelation, what is coming, all of that is shaped by what took place on a little hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And yet, as important as it is, I find that when I'm reading through the Easter story, I tend to want to rush through this part so I can get to Sunday. I want to get to the fun stuff. I want to get to the denouement of all of it. I don't want to dwell in the pain. But it's tremendously important. And so what I'd like to do tonight is I would like to begin this evening. Sunday's coming, and we look forward to that. But this evening, we simply want to sit in that moment when he paid everything 
so that we could be reconciled to God. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to to Mark chapter 15. And I want us to focus this evening, or at least begin, by walking through that first Good Friday found in Matthew 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the, in the seat backs in front of you. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to take one of these. We have extra. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus had, had the Last Supper with his disciples the night before. He then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is sitting on his knees and he's begging. I love the humanity that we see of Jesus. Because although this is the reason he came, he was still going, God, if there's any way we can do this other than me hanging on one of those, please, let's go that route. And yet, whatever you want, I will submit to you. And he walks out of that and the Roman centurions come, kind of invited by the Jewish leaders. And they say, that's the man. That's the rabble rouser. That's the rebel. And they arrest him. We begin reading in chapter 15, very early in the morning on that Friday, the first day of the Passover, the chief priests, along with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, made their plans. What are we going to do with this guy? He's dangerous. And if if we allow him to continue doing what he's doing, not only is he going to pull people away, pull people to his, his messed up theology, but he's going to bring the wrath of Rome down upon us and we are going to lose the tenuous foothold that we have here. What little we still have will be lost. So they came up with their plan. They bound Jesus up and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, Rome's hand-selected kind of ruler over the Jewish people. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, well, you've said so. And the chief priests begin to accuse him of many things. And, and so Pilate looks at him and goes, well, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to defend yourself? See how many things they're accusing you of? Don't you have a rebuttal? This is a man who is used to people begging for their life. Jesus has already come to terms with the fact that this is happening. It was for this hour that he came. He's not going to try to wiggle his way out of it anymore. He's submitted to it. So Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the Passover festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. There was a man named Barabbas who was in prison, along with the other rebels, the insurrectionists, who had committed murder in an uprising. So if all of the things that Jesus was accused of, all of the things that he was supposedly going to be put to death for, Barabbas had done. And the crowd came up to Pilate and asked him to do for them what he usually did. Are you going to release somebody to us? Well, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest, self-preservation, that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. Now, here is a moment when the crowds, many of whom probably had been at the gates as Jesus was riding his donkey in on Palm Sunday. Here's a moment when the crowds could veto the Sanhedrin and say, no, we want Jesus to live, release him to us, but they don't. They side with the chief priests. And the chief priests stirred up the crowd and, had, and told Pilate to release Barabbas instead. 
what do you want me to do then with the one called the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify them, or him, they shouted. But why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now the soldiers took Jesus and they led him away into the palace, which is called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole company of soldiers. They're going to have some fun at this guy's expense. Even his own people don't want him anymore. But he called himself the king of the Jews. Let's give him the the royal treatment then. And so they put a purple robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. And they began to call to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, and again, they struck him on the head, driving those, those thorns deeper into his scalp. And blood was flowing down his face. And they would, they would spit upon him. And they fell to their knees mockingly, paying homage to the supposed King of the Jews. And when they had mocked him to their heart's content, They removed the purple robe, put his own clothes back on him, and then they led him out of the city to crucify him. Now this whole time, he's been flogged with with whips. His his back is bleeding. He's, He's been beaten up. He's exhausted. And so when they put this heavy wooden bar on his shoulder to carry out, his body is continually failing. He stumbles all over the places he's trying to get out of the city. And so they, they grab a guy named Simon who was just coming into town from the countryside. He was just passing through and they said, you, pick that thing up and help him get it out to Golgotha, Skull Hill. They brought Jesus, this is verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, the place where crosses were hung and people were killed. And then they offered to Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, which is a way to deaden the pain that was about to ensue. But Jesus, wanting to be fully present for what was about to come, knowing that it was for this very reason that he came, he didn't take it. And then they crucified him. To crucify somebody simply means they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross and hung him up on a tree. As, they, as, they, as he was being crucified, they divided up his clothes and they began to cast lots. Basically, they were gambling to see who would get what, what little he had. It was nine in the morning when they nailed him to the cross. And they put a written notice of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. One more opportunity to kind of thumb their nose at somebody who would purport themselves to be more important than he really was. And Jesus was crucified between two rebels, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you were going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. Let's see you come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and all the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. <laughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. If, if he really is the Messiah, the King of Israel, then let him come down from the cross so that we can see and believe. And those crucified also heaped insults upon him. At noon, 
darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out in a loud voice using what little oxygen he had left in his lungs. Oxygen that had been paid at a price of his hands and his feet having to push himself up to take one more breath. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, Elamda Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing nearby heard this, they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar. They put it on a staff and they offered it to Jesus to drink. Okay, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last breath. And in that moment, the curtain of the temple that was used to separate the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne on earth, resided from all the rest of the people. That curtain was torn from top to bottom. And when a centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, that centurion was led to cry out, surely this man was the Son of God. I can't tell you how many times I've read this. And it's powerful, but it's become so utterly familiar to me. So familiar that it's almost begun to lose its power. I, I, I just know what's coming. I know what's going to happen. I can't help but read it in light of Sunday. But this week I've been trying to kind of put my, myself into the sandals of his disciples. These men who had been following him for several years. Men who had watched him, who had stood behind him shouting Hosanna as Jesus entered into Jerusalem some five days before that. I've just been trying to put myself into their shoes saying, what would it have been like as they stood back, away from the crowds, watching their rabbi, who they thought was the Messiah, bleed out on a Roman cross. Watching their hopes drip into the dust. Watching the leaders of the Jews, their religious elite, mocking the very one who came to save them. What would that have been like? I can only imagine that there was despair in that moment. Because this was not what they had expected. This is not what they thought would happen when they followed Jesus into Jerusalem a few days before. They thought that Jesus would ride this groundswell of popular acclaim to the throne, that he would reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation, that he would throw off the yoke of Rome. And instead, he was killed, surrounded by a couple of common thugs. Despair set in for them, because they did not see this coming. And yet, it's not as if God did not warn. It's not as if God did not give hints that this was always going to be the way that he was going to redeem mankind. And all, all we need to do, we see this, we read this in light of Easter Sunday. So we recognize that there's hope beyond this moment. All they could see is this moment. And it crushed them. 
because their hope was shattered. But I want us to recognize that this was never plan B. That this is how God planned to redeem mankind from the beginning of creation. I mean, think about this for a moment. There is foreshadowing all throughout Scripture that points to the fact that God would redeem mankind through a sacrifice. Go back to Genesis 3 for a moment. You don't have to turn there. But think about this. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Suddenly their eyes are open. They are ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They feel utterly vulnerable. And that's not acceptable. And so they grab the closest thing at hand that they can use to cover their nakedness. Fig leaves, which would wither in moments, would only last perhaps a day. But anything, any covering is better than no covering. And God shows up and, and after a conversation with them, He makes a more lasting covering for them out of animal skins. Do you remember this? Have you ever considered where those skins came from? Animal skins come from animals and they typically die in order to provide those skins, which means that the first death we have recorded in Scripture, the first death in human history, happens as a direct result of mankind's sin to cover over our shame. And this was foreshadowing of the entire sacrificial system that God would institute at Mount Sinai when he covenanted with the Israelites and he said, you are going to be my people. I am going to be your God. I am a holy God. And your sin is not compatible with me. We're like light and darkness. I'm light, you're darkness. It's not that you would sully me. It's that when you come into my presence in your imperfection, you will be utterly destroyed. You guys know how this works. Darkness is simply the absence of light. When you flip the switch and the light comes on, darkness is eradicated. And the same thing would happen with God. It's not that our sin would sully him. We just can't be in proximity to him and survive. And yet he created us to do life with him. And so he says, here is how we are going to do this. The wages of sin is death. But I don't want you to die in your sin. So instead, I will give you the ability to sacrifice an animal in your stead. And when you put your hand on that animal and you split its throat and its lifeblood flows out of it, you will recognize that this should have been you. And this life is momentarily covering your sins. And year after year, the Israelites would sacrifice animals to atone for their sins so that they could stay in proximity to their God. Fast forward to Egypt. The people of God are enslaved and God says, enough is enough. I'm going to bring my people out. I'm going to use a series of plagues to do so. I'm going to break the iron grip of Pharaoh over my people. I'm going to break the chains of slavery. And the final plague that he uses, the one that breaks the back of Pharaoh's resolve, is he, is he says, I'm going to wipe out the firstborn of every family, both human and animal in Egypt. You, my people, who fear me, who worship me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the fields, into your flocks, and I want you to choose a year-old spotless lamb from your flocks. I want you to invite that little lamb into your home for a week. Your kids are going to get attached. They're going to give it a name. 
And at the end of that week, though, don't let them get too attached, because at the end of that week, I want you to sacrifice that lamb on the Passover Friday. Sacrifice that lamb. Collect its blood. And you will use that blood to mark the doorframe of your home. And that blood will be a symbol, a sign to me, to my angel, as so as it goes through the land, metting out my justice to break the resolve of Pharaoh and set you free, when it sees the blood on your doorframe, it will pass over your homes. And the people of Israel did this. And as they heard the cries of their Egyptian neighbors, they realized that they had been saved by the blood of that pure and spotless lamb, again, foreshadowing what was to come. In Israel today, they are celebrating the Passover. This is the day that those, those lambs would be sacrificed to commemorate that moment in history. And all of this was foreshadowing the fact that God would ultimately allow death to redeem life. And you might be saying, well, okay, you're grasping at straws. It's metaphorical. It's a bit of too much of a stretch. They could easily have overseen, overlooked that. All right, I'll give you that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Because Isaiah, one of the prophets of God, makes it much more explicit that God is going to send a Messiah, his anointed Redeemer, who would who would take our sins upon himself and would be sacrificial. He wouldn't be a conquering king. Rather, he would be a suffering servant. So in the book of Isaiah, which is right about in the middle of your Bible, if you're looking for it, Isaiah 53. And and the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 is rich. We're going to just look at a few of the verses. But in Isaiah 53, we'll begin in verse 4. He says this of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him to be punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins, our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. This was written 600 years before Jesus hung on that cross. And yet it it, it sounds as if it was written by an eyewitness, doesn't it? Again, foreshadowing of the fact that the, the Messiah that was to come would not be a conquering king, would not come with a war horse and a sword and an army. He would come with his body and say, I am that Passover lamb. I am the sacrificial servant. I am the one who is giving my life for your life. One more. Turn with me to Psalm 22. You know, we're all very, very familiar with Psalm 23, right? The the shepherd's psalm, probably the most familiar single chapter in all of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. That's Psalm 23, and we know it really, really well. What you may not realize, though, is the single most um, quoted psalm in all of Scripture the, the most quoted psalm for the New Testament 
is Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. And yet, it's the first verse of that psalm that is upon Jesus' lips as he hangs on the cross, bleeding out in agony. And he cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Now, I've often, as I read this psalm, and I love coming here because it's rich with, with foreshadowing and, and, and kind of prophetic pointing, I've often wondered, was Jesus kind of pointing to this psalm when he, he cried out? My, I mean, because think about the amount of pain he would endure to get the breath to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was immense. And I wondered, was this his last lesson to his disciples? Was he pointing? Because he knew Scripture intimately. He had it memorized. Was he pointing to this psalm saying, today, this is being fulfilled in front of you? I don't know that we need to go that far. Here's what I do know. When David wrote Psalm 22, he was not pointing to Jesus and saying, this is going to happen. When he wrote it, he was talking about himself. And yet we also recognize that all scripture is inspired or breathed by God's spirit, imparted to men who wrote it down. And even though it was written into a particular historical context there and then, God often uses it to speak more powerfully in different times. And I truly believe that Psalm 22 was written prophetically for what Jesus was enduring on the cross. And as Jesus is hanging there, the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, isn't a lesson so much as it's just the natural cry in his pain of God. I feel so distant from you. As the sin of humanity is heaped upon him and the, his father turns from it because he can't watch his son suffer and he can't gaze upon our sin that's heaped upon him. It's just the natural cry of his heart. And yet, that cry directs us here. And I want to read Psalm 22 to you. I'm going to read about the first half right now. And I want you to think about what Jesus was enduring. Just listen to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. <clears throat> and yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one that Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and, and they weren't put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by all people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. And you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, and from my mother's womb you have always been my God. So don't be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. 
There are many bulls who surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircling me, looking to gore me. Roaring lions that tear their prey, opening their mouths wide against me, looking to tear me apart. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, and it's melted within me. If you know anything about crucifixion, we're going to talk a little bit about this in a moment, that's precisely what happens. Jesus didn't die from blood loss. He died from a broken heart. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Keep in mind that this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. Hundreds of years before Crucifixion was invented by the Romans as a way of executing criminals. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and they gloat over me. And they divide my clothes amongst them. And they cast lots for my garments. We read this. And it's hard not to feel as if this was written by an eyewitness who was watching Jesus be crucified, not by a king who lived a thousand years before he lived. And it's evident that this is kind of pointing towards what Jesus was enduring. But I would imagine that some of us who are not familiar with crucifixion are not don't understand what somebody goes through as they hang on a cross and slowly die, we might miss a ton of how much this lines up. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you briefly, and this is going to be a little hard for some of us to hear, but it is helpful for us to recognize the cost of the gift that Jesus paid for us, what it cost him. And so several years back, there was a doctor who sat down to explain to laypersons like us what somebody goes through when they're crucified. And we invite John Blue to come up here and and share with us a brief portion of what he wrote. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrists and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but allows some flexation and movement. The crossbar is then lifted in the place in the top of the crucifixion beam, and the sign reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and it's nailed in place. The left foot is now pressed backwards against the right foot. With both knees extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. They pierced His hands and feet. Jesus is now crucified. 
as he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists. Excruciating pain pulsates through his fingers and in his arms and explodes into his brain. The nails in his wrists are putting pressure on his nerves as he pushes himself upward to avoid that stretching torment. He places his full weight on the nails in his feet. Again, there is a searing agony The nails tearing through the nerves, through the bones of his feet. At this point, as his arms are fatigued, great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them into deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to move, and your muscles are not able to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise Himself in order to just get a short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and the bloodstream bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, He is able to push Himself upwards and exhale and bring the life-giving oxygen. Jesus experienced Limitless pain for hours. Cycling of twisting. Joints rendering cramps. Intermittent partial asphyxiation. Searing pain with a torn back that would rub against a cross, a wooden cross, as he moves up and down. Then another agony begins. A terrible crushing pain. Deep in his chest, his chest slowly fills with fluid and begins to compress his heart. One remembers again the psalm that we just read. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue sends their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. This brings to mind the verse in Psalm 22. It says, My mouth is dry and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It's difficult for us to listen to, and I, I, I do not have us listen to it simply so that we can revel in it. I just want us to recognize the gravity of what he did. And as we read through that, you begin to realize just how closely this description in Psalm 22 matches what Jesus went through. 
And then suddenly, in this moment in Psalm 22, the whole tone changes from one of despair and lament to one of hope. As so many of the Psalms do when it begins with, God, where are you? But constantly comes back to, but my trust is fixed in you. And while we're not going to read every single part of it, I want you to jump down to verse 30 because I want us to see how this psalm ends. It's in a completely different tone than how it begins. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with these words. Posterity, those who come after will serve him and future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people not yet born that he has done it. He's done it. And those words that the psalm ends with, sound awfully close, don't they? To some words that are on Jesus' lips. In fact, they're the last words that we hear him cry as he hangs on the cross. In, In Mark's Gospel, he simply says that he cried out and then breathed his last breath. But in John's Gospel, he tells us what he cried out. To telestai. And that word to telestai means It is finished. It's the word that you would kind of cry out to tell us as you as you're running a marathon and you finally cross the finish line to tell us it's finished. It's over. But what's finished? Was Jesus simply saying, I'm finished. I give up. This is like some fatalistic cry. No. So what is finished? Well, The sacrificial system is finished, right? Because he has taken upon himself the punishment for our sins that the animals were expected to uh, atone for. And so the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 says, By this one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever, has fully atoned for the sins forever of every man, woman, and child who has placed our faith in him and who are being made perfect. Holy. I love that. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy because it's a reminder that although our sins are fully paid for, we are all still in process. And I, for one, am still in process. I'm still in the process of being shaped into Christ's image. I'm, I'm not a perfect representation. But I know this He uses imperfect vessels to pour out His perfect love. Because that's all he has to work with right now. Right? Also, because he gets the glory. It's a reminder of the immense grace. So what was finished? The sacrificial system was finished. What else was finished? The, the, the chains of shame and guilt and sin that shackle us and keep us enslaved has, is finished. Jesus broke them on the cross. So we no longer need to remain estranged from our Father. We can come just as we are. I find it very interesting that the very last thing that Jesus does, it's finished and he breathes his last breath. Do you remember what the very next thing that happens is? We read that the veil in the temple 
that was there to separate Israel from their holy God so that they wouldn't be eradicated by his holy presence, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. As if God was emphatically stating, from here on out, you no longer need to remain estranged from me. You can come just as you are. I know what you've done. I know the guilt you carry around. I know the reasons that you think you don't belong close to me. But it's finished because he has done it. On that Friday, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He paid the penalty of our sins. He died in our place so that we could live and be reconciled to our Father God. And that is why we call today good. And there are some of you here this evening who probably don't feel like you belong here. There are some of you this here this evening who have been looking at the gift that Jesus bought on the cross and kind of holding it at arm's length saying, no, I don't deserve that. He didn't die for me because I'm not worth dying for. None of us are. I'm not worthy of His grace. You're right. None of us are. Which means that we all have the same foundation and it is a, it is a foundation of grace, not works, because you do not, you cannot earn a gift. All you can do is accept it and say thank you. And there are some of you here this morning who have been holding that gift of grace at arm's length because you go, when I'm a little better, when I've got my act together, when I've stopped living for myself and kind of cleaned myself up enough, then, maybe then I'll accept it. Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus died for prodigal sinners like you and me, and thank God that he did. He died in our place so that we could live in relationship to our Father. And if you've been holding this gift at arm's length, may I plead with you as somebody who has found a new lease on life by accepting him and allowing him to come into my life, would you accept that gift? And it's easy. All it is is just, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for paying that great price for a gift I could have never earned. I invite you to come into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I thank you that you have given me new hope for tomorrow. I ask that you would show me how to live today. Thank you for taking care of my sins so that I can slowly be shaped in your image and be a representative of you. I give you my life. There's nothing magic about these words. It's different every time I I pray. That is simply an example. But I could not go through tonight and not implore you to stop holding this gift of grace at arm's length. And I also recognize that there are plenty of us in here who have tasted and seen how good God is. We've accepted that gift. And tonight what we want to do is we want to celebrate. And Jesus instituted a a, a way of us remembering 
how good he is remembering what he did for us some 2,000 years ago. The night before he was or the night before he was crucified, he introduced this thing to the disciples. And so I'm going to invite John to come up and lead us in communion as we remember the sacrifice of our Lord. instituted one of our sacraments called communion. And it was this intimate gathering with all of his disciples. A little more intimate than this in here, but there's something about the intimacy of this place where Jesus took the bread on that day and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this represents my body that was broken for you. He said, eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine that was red like blood, and he said, this represents my blood that was spilled for you. He said, when you drink this, he said, drink it in remembrance of me. And he said this thing, do it often, when you come together. See, because what happens when we do communion is, is a celebration in my life, because I'm taking who I am to the cross, and this is what I'm saying. God, your son paid the price. I don't have to bear the guilt of my sin anymore. See, I come to the table and, and I walk away and there's a freedom. There's no weight. There's no guilt. There's the rejoicing of what Jesus did on that cross some 2,000 years ago. So as we come and receive the elements this evening, I just sit in that a little bit. The description of the cross. The words that Pastor Eric read. Just let it sit and feel the weight of it. And then as you come to this table, put your sins at the cross. And walk away in the freedom that only comes through the hope of Jesus Christ. Let me pray as we get ready to receive this communion. Father, I thank You for this opportunity to come to the table as we look back some 2,000 years ago and seeing what You did, Father God. God, it is good today because I didn't have to pay the price, but You did. Thank You, Jesus. As we come to receive the bread and remember Your body was broken for us, and when we come to receive the wine and remember that your blood was shed for us. We say thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.